Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. Uh, hey, Danny, we're back finally for another episode of Gov Actually. Uh, I think we all took uh, Labor Day and some other days off, but um, you, you're we've... like you're like the whole summer. It's been like <laughs> I guess we needed to recharge our battery a bit. So exactly, I think like, everyone... the start of the school year, post Labor Day, we're coming out and I'm out strong. Coming out strong, and we're coming out with another one of our episodes where we feature some brilliant person's book. So I'm very excited about it. Uh, we have Beth Novak with us today. And um, because her uh, because her, her background is, um, is so incredible, I'm not going to try to summarize. I'm literally gonna read a paragraph um, <laughs> on her background because- It is impressive. There are so many layers. To, this thing is, um, do you remember, uh, do you remember Shrek, you know, uh, it's, you know, the onion, you know, with yes. the layers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I yeah. think in some ways, as you read, uh, you know, Beth might be the perfect gov actually guest because exactly. all I, the I layers of, of really understanding government from every possible angle. I think one or the other of us are going to have to, you know, uh, choose straws is going to have to leave the shelf for Beth. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I choose so, you. <laughs> so Beth Simone Novak is a professor at the Northeast at Northeastern University, where she directs the Burns Center for Social Change and its partner project, the Governance Lab or the GovLab, and its MacArthur Research Network on Opening Governance. The author of Sol Solving Public Problems: How to Fix Our Government and Change Our World, from the Yale Press, 2021, the book we're going to talk about this morning. She's also core faculty at its Institute for Experiential AI at Northeastern. She's on leave from New York University's Tandon School of Engineering uh, and New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy appointed her as the state's first chief innovation officer and Chancellor Angela Merkel, Angela Merkel named her the Digital Council in 2018. I'm gonna take a breath so you can think about all that. She's also the visiting senior faculty fellow at the John J. Heldrich Center for Workforce Development at Rutgers University and a fellow at NYU's Institute for Public Knowledge. Danny Werfel told me this morning he gets up on average at 4.30. Beth, you must never go to sleep. Yeah, that's an impressive uh, impressive bio. I, I want to start with just a reflection on the book, which is, um, and then we'll turn it over to Beth. I, you know, given everything that's going on in the world, and there's so much, it's obviously such an unprecedented time with uh, COVID and uh, climate change and the you know everything in the aftermath of the 20 uh 20 presidential election i've been obsessing over a number of questions of what that all means with respect to government trust in government our institutions the role of government and then this book beth um really kind of scratches all those itches you 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 clearly were obsessing about the very same questions I was obsessing about. And then you did a wonderful job kind of not only laying it out, but also kind of coming up with some practical uh, themes and theses of how we 
we move forward. So welcome to uh, to the podcast. Talk a little bit. Did I get it right in terms of the inspiration behind the book and talk a little bit about what you were trying to achieve with it? It's so great to be here and great to see old friends. And uh, I really, really appreciate the kind introduction. Um, I think you're absolutely right that having spent time both in the federal government and now in state government, I have just gotten to see firsthand, I think, a few things. And especially with COVID, uh, the COVID experience, sadly not in the rearview mirror, but I think a lot of us in public service had a very, very intense last 18 months, obviously. What we got to see on the one hand is that there were plenty of failures, plenty of bungling in a lot of places, but also it's very easy to you know, blame government. It's a favorite thing to do to, uh, for government to be the punching bag. We saw a lot of really great success stories about governments that were really successful on delivering effective services to people, whether it was taking benefits that were previously provided in a face-to-face -face fashion and putting them online, whether it was providing people with successful information where they needed it, when they needed it, you know, getting uh, uh, aid packages to people. Um, there's really a lot of examples, both domestically and around the world, of governments that were really, really successful because they acted according to a different playbook. And I think it really just sort of amplified something that those of us who've been in government or government watchers have known for many, many years, that there have been great pockets of innovation and experimentation where you've seen public servants who have gone out and used data to do things in a more evidence-based way. Nobody knows more about that than you guys. Um, people who have really acted in an agile way, sort of putting politics to one side and really focusing on the problem that they have to solve and getting it done quickly, using human-centered design, citizen engagement, whatever the term is that you want to reuse, really listening to the communities that they're trying to serve. Um, and that's that kind of has been that playbook has really been accelerated during COVID and we've seen the success that those skills can really bring in terms of better services and policies. I, I have a, the, the, I'll tell you this question that's been, I've been turning over in my head a lot and I wanna get your opinion and maybe Dan's opinion on it as well. So I was thinking about this spectrum of how the world, how the US reacts to scenarios and whether we politicize it or not, right? And so at one end of the spectrum, I just, for whatever reason, I thought about the, the little child or the girl trapped down the well. And when that happens, pol you know, politics goes out the door and everyone comes together to, to, to solve the problem and figure out how we're gonna rescue uh, the child out of the well. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum are things that have been politicized for long times, like questions about immigration and the border and gun control. And if you would have told me in 2019 that we we're about to have a uh, an unprecedented public health crisis that would impact not just the U.S. but the world in a, in a severe way, I would have thought in a public health emergency, we would have landed closer to the girl down the well than to the classic politicization. But we haven't. At least I don't think we have. We've landed much more in a politicization and. Why, why is that? And, you know, what, what do you think, and was I wrong to have thought of that, that, that this was, should have been more the girl down the well situation in terms of the state of politics and trusting government and things like that? Oh, we don't, I, oh, 
Um, I think you're right that so many of us would have assumed that things like putting on a mask would be a simple matter and not a hugely hot button issue. Uh, I think we would have thought that the idea of a life-saving vaccine would have been something that is, you know, uh, closer to C-SPAN than ESPN um, in terms of how uh, a friend of mine puts this. Um, politics is much more like sports uh, uh, and, and much more combative and governance uh, um, uh, should be much less so. Um, but I think, you know, what's the difference, there's a number of differences, including uh, uh, the role of social media, the role of the media in fostering extreme uh, polarization, the need for both parties to go to the extremes uh, in order to shore up their electoral base. Um, you know, so a lot of this has to do with demographics and also with uh, um, uh, redistricting, all kinds of political issues, I think, that are above our pay grades as government watchers and governance watchers and people focused on the day after the election day. But I think particularly as people who care about government and problem solving, we have to recognize that we have to be able to solve problems in a politicized environment. We're not talking about, and especially for public servants, this is not problem solving in a vacuum. You have to be able to do things in a very political context where even without regard for the left-right issues, which is a huge, uh, you know, a huge issue, you know, we're working in political environments where we have political leaders who are up for election um, and those, uh, uh, those cycles and that timing can really affect what we do. The fact that we have to govern for all people who have very differing views um, the fact that we have to really be able to solve problems in a very agile way, because again, we just have to be able to get things done quickly. So I think it just adds to the urgency and the emphasis of the fact that we need a set of skills and methods. We need what academics like to call a set of heuristics, basically sort of a set of new processes in the 21st century that take advantage of the skills and tools we have available to us today from big data to online forms of engagement to be able to solve problems in a more legitimate way. In other words, a way that actually involves listening to people, involves diagnosing and understanding what the problems are on the ground. Look, let's come back to the mask wearing thing. In a highly politicized environment, if I wanna address the question as a public servant of how I'm gonna get more people to wear masks, I really have to have a process for defining the problem and understanding is the reason people not that they're not wearing masks because they can't afford masks and they don't have access to masks? Or is it because of misinformation and disinformation and things they're hearing on the media or from political officials? Knowing what those root causes are, having a process for really diagnosing that and understanding where citizens are coming from is going to affect the solution that I deliver and making sure that I deliver an effective solution. So politics is just one of the many hurdles we have to overcome. But yes, I don't think any of us would have predicted it. I think even today, most of us are smacking ourselves in the head sometimes when we see how politicized some of these issues. Um, I don't think it's how they're becoming. I think it's how people are making them and it's a very intentional process, but it's just something we have to navigate around if we're to do our jobs. I um, uh, had a very witty city council member once uh, say to me that my problem was I thought it was about efficiency when the goal was really redistribution. And uh, uh, to paraphrase that, maybe uh, sometimes the mistake is thinking that at, in the political realm, it's about governance when it's really around politics and it's really around um, uh, advantage 
political advantage, but that doesn't then mean that people aren't seeking and looking for governance. Beth, your experience is really interesting in the sense that it, it spans uh, into international, into, into other governments. How to say, how does a, a country like Germany how do they handle are these discussions that vastly different there? Is there is there something about their system or apparatus that makes it much more different? Or are humans humans wherever you, you uh, run into them? <laughs> I hope humans are humans everywhere. <laughs> that, um, But I think some of the differences I'm seeing as a watcher of uh, how people in, uh, in around the world are thinking about public sector is in my mind, there is a, for at least forward thinking, forward leaning governments, including Germany, including Canada, including Singapore, among others, are doing a lot more to think about public sector upskilling in a much more systematic way. So on May 31st, I believe it was, Germany launched its new digital academy. You can find it online at Digital Academy. Um, and essentially they are providing free training to all public servants in what they call new work. And they say it in English, not in German, I think to make it sound sexier and to make it really sound new and contemporary. But the things we're talking about with regard to using data, using human-centered design, thinking and working in a more agile way, um, that's what they're calling new work. And they're deliberately distinguishing it as a new mindset as much as as a new skill set. And I think importantly, from the top down, there is leadership and vision around providing training to public servants and creating incentives for people to upskill. Two years ago, Canada launched its program that they call Bus Rides, intentionally called Bus Rides because the idea is you're supposed to train yourself on your way to work on the bus. Um, notice we emphasize public transit if we're in Canada, so you're on the bus, it's not called a car ride. Um, and you can get a 15 minute podcast about what is AI or what is blockchain or, you know, sort of basics of digital skills. Singapore is taking their bet in a different direction. They want every public servant to learn how to code. It's a bit more radical. I'm not sure it's the right bet, um, but they're making a big bet. And they're saying, number one, we want to invest in public sector upskilling. We want to make sure people have the latest access to new technologies into new tools. And we want the public sector to catch up with the private sector in terms of its understanding and knowledge of technology at the very least. Um, and so as they're doing around private sector upskilling, which has uh, um, become quite a success story, they are also mandating public sector upskilling. So looking around the world, it's not by no means universal. You have lots of places like Israel and the UK that are more focused on sort of digital leader programs, you know, training 40 people or 50 people. Um, you've really got an emphasis on investing in the public workforce and focusing on public sector upskilling by providing free access to 21st century skills training. Yeah, I, you know, the, the, when I phrased the question, like I, I was asking, like, why why did we end up where we ended up in a kind of the politicization of whether it's vaccines or masks? Because I want to understand how to how we can do better next time, how, how we can manage the politics better. In, in your book, one of the big takeaways I had is that a lot of the roads to success and to positive movement from your vantage point is engaging citizens differently than, than we do today. At least that was my takeaway. Like there's a power to uh, to to sharing with with the public the both the challenge the opportunity and the risks as we move forward 
how thinking about like the lessons learned from the pandemic and 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 some of the things that have set us back channel that for us in terms of how how we can engage the public differently and and citizens differently to to do better next time so let me start with a quick example of something i've been doing in my own work just recently is in the state of new jersey we turn to new technology together with our department of education to ask parents and students what have been the most difficult challenges for them in their education during COVID? So before setting out to say, what's the next set of policies we wanna make? What's the next set of services we wanna deliver? We used a simple free open source tool to ask people which are the greatest challenges that they're facing. And it took us two weeks and we heard from close to 20,000 people who responded to us and helped us to prioritize what are the issues that they care about allowing us now to create, we hope, more responsive policies and services. You don't even need complicated technology. You know, the, uh, our economic development authority, when uh, COVID hit, created a survey and it went out to businesses and it said, what's going on for you in the field? Tell us what are the problems you're actually suffering from. And we were then able to develop a set of financing and grant programs. New Jersey by, by, is far from the largest state but was able to give away the most money after California and New York, the two most populous states, was able to give away the most money, the, the fastest to businesses to provide relief during COVID. And that's obviously partly about generosity, but it's partly about, I think, designing a program that was really intended to meet people where they were and respond to their needs. So I think simple acts of listening and creating a feedback loop where we're then really designing policies and services around what people's challenges are can make a huge, huge difference. You know, we saw it during vaccine distribution where our team, you know, did some of the work to interview senior citizens and show them version one of our vaccine site. Um, which, you know, was awful in the beginning, and it was not something that was accessible to people, but, the, you know, a small act of going out and sort of testing with senior citizens to make sure are we designing this in a way that works for you enabled us to make things more accessible to people who are not particularly tech savvy. Let me, before I um, go any further, take that back to, to say that I don't want to equate not being tech savvy with being a senior citizen uh, <laughs> as someone who is getting older myself and who has a nine-year-old mother with uh, you know, two computers and three cell phones. Um, there are plenty of tech-savvy senior citizens, but uh, we wanted to make sure for those who are uh, um, not tech-savvy that we're designing services in a way that work for them. Um, so I think, yes, it, that idea of listening to people and using new technology to make that faster and easier to do is so hugely important. You know, if it would have been easier a few years ago to say, you know what, this is really difficult. We don't have the time, we don't have the money, but now the tools are available to us today to make this so much cheaper and easier to do in a way that we couldn't have talked about this even five years ago in the same ways. But let me just say that knowing how to do that is not innate. It's not something you're just sort of born with or automatically know. And if you're a public servant today, you know, especially in the federal workforce, 6% of the federal workforce is under the age of 30. That means you were not trained in college or grad school in how to use any kinds of tools for digital listening. So it's something we really have to invest in learning how to do. 
My, my first year at OMB, we, we were introduced to this incredible new uh, communication technology called email. And uh, I remember my boss saying, yeah, if you really want to get me something, don't send it on that. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not going to catch on. Um, there's a whole lot of uh, uh, different threads that are coming together here, uh, upskilling public workforce, uh, building better communications with uh, the people being served by these systems um, through, you know, through that improving efficiency and, and uh, enhancing the, the connection of, of people to government with this idea that the subtext being that that might help overcome the opportunity for people to simply politicize actions and, 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 and render governance the, the less interesting and important aspect of the, of the social sphere. Um, I do want to I do want to push a little bit though on on this idea that um, uh, technology is in and of itself, you know, the the solution. Um, uh, it, it's it seems like it's more of a factor and maybe a platform, but there there seems to be a bunch of other work that has to happen in order for it to be effective. I agree with you a thousand percent. And I think that you do see much more you know, excitement about and, and discussion of digital skills, of uh, learning tech. You know, As I mentioned before, Singapore wanting to teach people to code. I think that's the wrong idea. Um, I mean, nothing wrong with learning to code, but this is really about a change in mindset. It's fundamentally about, as Danny made clear before, listening in new ways being open uh, to collaboration and uh, uh, to, to citizens, but also to other sectors in how we identify and understand problems and also how we solve them. Um, and that's really just about changing culture much more than it is about any specific tools. I think the tools do help us make it faster, they make it easier, they make it cheaper and more efficient, but this is not about any particular tool at all. Um, when we talk about using data, yes, we do want to be able to collaborate with the data scientists, but we don't have to be data scientists for ourselves. What we have to be able to do is to define a problem, to have a hypothesis about why something is happening. Why are people not wearing masks? Why is the trash not getting taken out? Why is a particular benefit program not working? Um, and that's not something that requires us to be hugely technical but it does require us to know how to formulate good questions and to have a process, I think, for ourselves for really um, going from defining a problem to identifying solutions to problems to then developing a strategy for implementation and scale and measurement. And I think doing that at every step of the way, thinking about how we engage with other sectors and other people as part of that process and how we use data at every step of that way. Again, doesn't have to be on our own. We're gonna be collaborating with universities that might have the talent in data science. We're gonna be collaborating with private sector that might have the tools that make some of this listening and engagement and data use easier. Um, but it's really thinking about how do we create the teams that enable us to do that at every stage of the way. And that's as much about mindset as it is about skill set. I don't know, I think for all of us, we are really on the cusp of the generation that's shifting from closed door government to more open forms of governing um, and more collaborative forms of governing. But I think, you know, we're not, we're, not, we're not even close to being there yet. 
I think over the last 10 years, we've developed much more understanding of the value that data can play. I think no one would argue today about the value of data or under or fail to understand that data can be useful in helping us to understand a problem. I think we're still a long way from really, really understanding the value that collaboration and openness can play. I don't know if you would agree with that or not, but I think we're still far behind in terms of really recognizing that that kind of collaboration can be done efficiently and can actually help us be more effective at our jobs, as opposed to the fear that it's just going to open us up to criticism and abuse and, um, you know, overwhelming amounts of input that we can't handle. So I do agree, but I, I have, a, you know, I started my first question with the spectrum, the, the girl in the well spectrum. I have another spectrum question for you, but let's do it about, about the way the government communicates with the public. But let's, uh, let's hold off. Uh, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, I'll ask my second spectrum question of the podcast. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, Danny, we're back for a second half of a conversation with Beth. You have a question, a spectrum question, you said, uh, some kind of question about a range of items. What, yeah. what do you have for Beth? I think I've raised this before, um, but um, so, uh, you know, I've been thinking about the way in which government communicates with the public. And, and this is more kind of historical. I've thought about the fact that, you know, at the founding of our nation, you know, the way in which we tried to influence public thought was things like the Federalist Papers, right? And people were waiting for the next Federalist Paper to come out to, you know, to kind of help understand how the debate around the future of the country was going to play out and what the best arguments were going to be. And then shoot forward to, to today, or at least in the in the last administration, it was waiting for the next tweet. You know, and that seems to me to be kind of a massive change. And I, you know, in some ways you can lament, like, I wish we could go back to a world in which we communicated along a much more rich, multi-dimensional analytical view of, of the issues versus, you know, 160 characters. On the other hand, there's some positivity to, about the, the power of the information age, if it can be channeled correctly. And Beth, I'm wondering, you know, as your book kind of points out that, that if we can engage innovation amongst our citizenry and the power of the public, then, then, then that's going to take both government and society to, to new heights and help us uh, solve problems. How should we be thinking about um, this question of communication? Should we try to push more back towards deeper Federalist paper type um, communications, or should we learn how to do tweeting better? <laughs> uh, so uh, as somebody who doesn't have enough hours in the day, frankly, I'm grateful for the tweet. <laughs> since I don't know about you, but I find I have much less time to read, probably because I'm spending too much time reading on Twitter. Um, but I think the wonderful, you know, the wonderful thing about the internet is that in fact, 
and what we don't give ourselves credit for in all of the self-abnegation about social media and our use of it is that we're all reading, reading much, much more. We're all writing so much more. We're all expressing ourselves so much more. And there are opportunities for us to express ourselves in long form and in short form, which creates opportunities for so many more people to be involved in the dialogue. So, uh, you know, this the Federalist Papers as a wonderful model, but it's also a very exclusionary model of who gets to talk. Um, very highly literate, very, you know, the people who are comfortable in long form style of writing, you know, my kid gets his news uh, from YouTube now, from outlets like Vox and Cheddar, and boy, oh boy, is he more educated about what's going on in the world than I am now or I ever was at his age, um, because they're wonderful ways of expressing yourself. He also has a YouTube channel. Um, about politics and governance at the age of 11. <laughs> he should, maybe he should be your next guest um, uh, because there's this wonderful ways in which people can express themselves, you know, using video, using short form, um, you know, and using other kinds of outlets. And so I'm, what's coming to my mind is as you're talking and I want to mention before as a project uh, that we were all around for the launch of, which was challenge.gov. So challenge.gov started now over a decade ago, over a thousand challenges created by federal agencies around the simple idea of government saying to citizens, you know, do you have a solution to this hard problem and asking for uh, and asking for people's ideas. And those ideas range from, as we've seen, those challenges are everything from how do I create a next generation space vehicle to, you know, Michelle Obama's how do I create healthier recipes for kids in school. These create lots of different ways for people to engage. We're also of the generation that launched the first, you know, data paloozas and hackathons. Um, I think, you know, hackathon was a bad word when it first came out. I remember being told, you were told don't use email. You know, I remember being told, don't use the word hackathon in public or hack because people understood it to be, you know, hacking uh, as opposed to the idea of civically minded, passionate individuals coming together to work on developing a better piece of software to deliver a citizen service or how to find data for social good. Um, you know, so this has created great new ways for people to engage, to express themselves, to be part of the conversation, to participate in the life of their democracy, that I think is only a good thing. So putting to one side, you know, the issue, uh, as we've recently heard in the news, that, of course, Instagram and Facebook are intentionally trying to trade on the anxieties and fears of uh, teenagers or that, you know, social media companies are selling and abusing our data um, that Twitter is, you know, creating a place for flame wars. There's lots of bad things, of course, but there are also ways in which these tools are making it possible for greater equity and greater inclusivity in these conversations for people who are powerless in the physical world to come together and form virtual communities where they are truly powerful and engaged and working on solving problems together um, in ways that are just truly, truly exciting. So. I am a perennial optimist and I see, you know, the moral arc of the universe, uh, uh, including technology bending towards good in the in the longer term. Yeah, that that arc, as we know, doesn't bend itself. Um, funny story about the, the hack word. I had put it in a memo to the president's chief of staff and someone reviewing it. I had said something about hacking government. 
circled it and said, don't we arrest people for that? So um, the, uh, the, the word has changed uh, in, in meaning for some people, at least. Yes, we, there the, was a lot of... Last, uh... Over the last <laughs> decade, by the way, that hurts. Ouch, a decade. Um, but uh, I, think, I think your point is a good one about uh, the Federalist Papers versus Twitter in the sense that, you know, do you know what a quill and parchment in India ink cost in the, in the late 1700s? It was a very much uh, a rich person's game to comment on their government that wasn't, uh, many people uh, weren't even literate. Um, so it was a dialogue of, among the few. What we have now is a dialogue among everyone. You know, every, every, every 11 year old apparently has the equivalent of a parchment quill and ink in the form of Twitter and can comment. What's interesting then is, you know, and again, pulling on your, your broader international experience, why does it seem if we are so democratized in our communication, uh, democracy seems to be more challenged than ever? You would think that that would be reinforcing rather than um, than something that pulls it apart. So it's uh, <laughs> it's it, it, you guys are very very much wanting to talk about politics for folks who are uh, who are very much government uh, day I, I after the election. I actually, people. I actually want to take it not away from politics, but really, like yeah. what happens then is people get to politics. But actually, it underlines a, a big part of your thesis in this book, which, which I'm stealing Danny's thunder. So he'll be he'll, he'll be mad at me later. It's really around trust, right? Isn't it really around the trust in governance and the trust in what people are getting from their government? Absolutely. Well, that's of course the motivating. You asked me at the beginning, what's the what was the motivation for writing this book? Um, and, you know, I got right into some of the kind of frontline experiences, but ultimately the bigger motivation here, I think, is this observation that all of us have watched to some extent with horror from the sidelines that we have seen rates of trust in government decline over the course of a generation um, to lowest levels in recorded history and have a real sense that to some extent that's a justified decline in trust that its government doesn't deserve our trust in many cases. Now, those of us who are in government or who've been in government, you know, again, see lots of success stories going on and, and would regard government as sometimes being the unfair punching bag here. Um, but we definitely want to reverse those declines in trust. You know, I have a colleague at NYU named Paul Light who writes frequently about government failures. There's also a great book by Peter Shuck called Why Government Fails So Often. Um, these are both nonpartisan writers sort of looking at the ways in which though the government has in fact failed too often and is not doing a, as good a job as it could. Um, and so we all recognize that I think the decline in trust is sometimes a very deserved phenomenon. Again, sometimes it's a creature of politics because what people don't trust is politicians. It's not that they don't trust government and the two things get conflated very frequently that, you know, you could ask about government and what people actually mean is they don't trust politics or they disagree with politicians. Um, but we've really seen a kind of, you know, historic decline in trust in government and together with that, perhaps more frighteningly and dangerously, a decline in trust in democracy um, at the same time. And you see lots of survey data about young people saying that democracy is essentially optional to them. Uh, and they would like, you know, they would 
you know, the best case scenario is a version of this in which you say people just want to live in a place like Singapore in the sense that they really just want to see the trash taken out. There is bipartisan agreement on most issues that people want government just to work and they want it to function. Um, and so part of the motivation for all of this is really just to ask the question, how can we make government function better? Um, and it doesn't have to be an indictment of government because there are many things that government does well. It's definitely not a rejection of the role that government has to play, simply saying that as the largest employer in the United States, as this incredible force for good, especially today with, you know, on the poise, we're poised to spend, you know, more money than we've ever had since World War II, that we want us to do just a good job of all the things that this administration is setting out to do, put shots in arms, reverse climate change, deal with racial equity, you know, build uh, and, and shore up crumbling infrastructure. We got a lot of problems to fix. Um, and people don't trust government to fix them. And if not government, then, then who else is gonna do it? So yeah, I, I'm of the mind, I come at it from the angle of, man, the government succeeds a lot it's just unnoticed, you know? Um, and you, you, you have a couple of points of that in, in your book too. Um, uh, when, you, when you start to introduce the concept around government trust and, you know, every, you know, every day, thousands and thousands of flights take off and land safely. And that's, you know, the government, um, you know, with air traffic control and uh, improved safety inspections and requirements on on uh, on on what planes are fit to fly and not fly, and you know the rate of of accident in the airline industry has gone down tremendously. You know, the 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 requirements around food safety in our restaurants and and I can go on and on. You you actually probably could 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 exhaust you know hours and hours of everything that happened in your day today that resulted in a government success um but but we tend to focus on on the failure points and and i think that that leads to a trust deficit and it ends up being a vicious cycle because as the deficit increases we tend to divest in government. We pull money away from them to punish them. We 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 cut training. We 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 refuse to pay our government employees commensurate with their skill sets to bring the right expertise into government. Um, and my whole thing, and I think this is you know similar to what the Partnership for Public Service tries to do with the with their efforts, is to try to make sure people are celebrating government and recognizing it and looking at it through this a different lens that they're normally looking at it to understand that um, that you're surrounded every day by government success that you know just the fact that you know there's probably a, a 500 successes we could brainstorm just in the fact that we're doing this remote podcast together you know everything that allows that to happen um, is, you know, there's, it's, it's both the government and the private sector, but again, government successes are part of that linked chain that allows everything that's happening this morning to be happening successfully. Look, the internet that we're on is a creature of government. The Mac that I'm talking to you from exists because of a government subsidy that helped Apple to get started. 
Um, it's a little known fact that it is not just a private sector success story. Uh, you're absolutely right. The fact that my trash is is uh, not overflowing and I don't have rats in my house is because somebody took out that trash. We have umpteen success stories. That's why I, I wanted to reiterate that, you know, it is much too easy and the media has made it too easy to make government a punching bag. And there has been a very concerted, vicious cycle, frankly, that was kind of deliberately instigated to tell a story about government being the problem, not the solution, right? We remember Reagan's first inaugural. That is a you know, a narrative that's been perpetuated over the last, how many years is that? You think 10 years was a long, long time ago? Well, 1980 is an even longer time ago. So we've got, you know, a 40-year uh, a kind of effort to tell the story that government is the problem and not the solution. But we surely saw during COVID, as much as there were stories of government bungling and government failures and problems, um, we have seen tremendous success stories here and around the world of government really, really doing things right. But that's not to say that we don't want government to work even better, um, that we can do things faster and more effectively, that we can do things in a more equitable way, that we can do them in a more data-driven way. And we want to continue those success stories. And yes, kudos to the Partnership for Public Service, who especially during COVID were able to put on the SAMIs um, the awards for public servants to really shout out the successes of what government does in terms of life-saving science, cutting-edge inventions, um, and then to get wonderful celebrities uh, on board to really talk about government. I mean, I think there is also, a, thanks to COVID, a generational shift in which people are interested in talking about government and government performance now in a way that I surely haven't seen in quite a while. I remember being told, you know, when I was working on open government for Obama, like he can't be in the same hemisphere when you do an announcement on open government. I mean, that's an, a slight exaggeration, only because talking about government modernization and government process was just considered the third rail of boredom. Um, so it, it was very hard to get kind of presidential pronouncements on the topic because, you know, it was just dull, it was considered dull and talking about ourselves, talking about government, not something that we were conditioned to do. Um, so this idea of celebrating government success and whether it's teachers or sanitation workers or public health workers or policy professionals and scientists, um, there are huge numbers of success stories. But again, I think there's still a lot of room to make government work better and to really have to reverse that trend in a distrust of government to get the media to start talking about success stories in government uh, and to create government that is more data-driven and more equitable in the way that it does things. So I think it's a yes and, I don't disagree with you at all, but it doesn't mean that we can't do better to create more effective government. Um, so this whole debate about bigger or smaller government I think is really a red herring and when we should be talking constantly about more effective government. Beth, um, uh, thank you for all these different uh, considerations for us to ponder uh, about how we, how we build a better and more effective and more engaged and engaging government. I, I love this idea you know, that you're pursuing with this upskilling, the, the, um, the classes that you, you know, the podcast that's directed towards uh, government employees to improve their, their access to a broader perspective, this idea that if you can build competence that leads to enhanced confidence 
which then breeds trust, right? It's that performance that breeds and builds that trust. Um, I also appreciate you, you sliding in a plug there for the Sammies. The Sammies are gonna be again broadcast live so that it's not just for the people in the room, it's for everyone to hear about the success stories of, of their government servants. That's on November 3rd. And I know Danny and I will do some work leading up to it. Maybe even another um, Gov Actually um, Sammy's pregame show. Um, we'll see if uh, we'll see if Danny's up for that. The red carpet. Got to get my touch. I was gonna say the red carpet. What are they wearing to the set to the to the uh, Zoom Danny, Danny was poolside, just like the the movie star he is. Uh, I was. Uh, I was wearing. I wore a tux on Zoom. Um, right. I was COVID safe in my uh, in my in my house, and I had a I had tux from here. Uh, just on the top part, you know, uh, <laughs> it was, it was definitely a COVID tux. Um, COVID tux, yeah. Beth, it was so good to see you again. Thank you for your continued dedicated public service and, and leadership in, in, in spreading these ideas and developing these ideas. It's, it's really great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. And I will just put in one last plug for the fact that um, the, we've created out of the course, we've the book, we've created a free course um, all of the skills that I talk about, so whether it's using data or listening to citizens and using tools to do it, we've put everything up at solvingpublicproblems.org. It grows out of work we've been doing in New Jersey to build a free um, skills training program for public servants that we're now uh, disseminating to multiple states. Um, so we really want to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to introduce themselves to these uh, skills and to teach one another uh, um, increasingly these new ways of working that can only help us to be more effective. Yeah, I saw it. It looks, it looks really comprehensive. It looks amazing. It looks fun. Uh, so I'm excited to dig, dig deeper into it. You can never stop learning. There you go. Well, we, uh, I hope, I hope that you will because, uh, we need your expertise and to share that with as many people as possible. Maybe we can uh, think about how to integrate some podcasting into uh into that that's what the canadians are doing they're doing these bus ride podcasts as a way to upskill public servants so uh um i think it's a it's a great idea um and i think we want to just keep the positive spotlight shining on the role that government can play in solving problems and how to do better at that together uh, well, with citizens that's what gov actually tries to do the jury's out whether it's working or not but thanks again <laughs> thanks again for joining us danny it's always good to see you yeah Thank you, Beth. Uh, really Thank appreciate it. Thank you so it. much for having me. All right. Okay, awesome. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. Bye.